Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Story. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today, I'm talking about Season 6, Episode 5, Life Serial, where Buffy tries to figure out what to do with her life and gets stuck in a magical loop. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of Writing as a Second Career, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with the breakdown of life serial, I'll talk about how stretching or breaking the characters of Buffy and her friends undermines the power of the story, why internal logic matters for the spells and the story, in-character versus out-of-character humor, and why magic needs consequences. As always, there are no spoilers until the end when I'll talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Life Serial aired the first time on October 23, 2001. It was written by David Fury and Jane Espenson and directed by Nick Mark. The episode starts with a minor opening conflict that quickly leads to the main plot and draws the viewers into the episode. Buffy has been off to see Angel. She comes home with a bucket of fried chicken and is a little taken aback to see everyone already around the dining table finishing dinner. Tara, though, sensing that this makes Buffy feel bad, says that she would still love some chicken, and the others say they would too. Willow makes a joke about being a, quote, breast girl, but then again, you knew that, end quote. Dawn asks Buffy how it was seeing Angel, and Buffy, looking down, tells her it was intense, but she doesn't want to talk about it. It's not important, and Dawn says, sure, whatever. Giles asks what Buffy's going to do now, and Buffy says she figured it out, and she alludes to all the bill-paying issues from Flooded, saying that she'll hold off on paying the plumber, then she can cover the utility bill and later reshingle the roof. But Giles meant with her life. So that transitions us to the main conflict of the episode. And already I see a a minor or I have a minor concern with Giles because in a moment he's going to seem very concerned about Buffy and he will again later. But I feel like he doesn't give any credit to the fact that while off with Angel, Buffy actually sorted out how she might handle these bills, despite that last time she left it to him saying, oh, thank you for taking care of all of it. Normally that minor thing wouldn't bug me, but it is such a theme throughout the episode of this feeling that Buffy will have that she is screwing up and it relates to how Giles is at the end of the episode. In response to Giles's question about her life, Buffy says, oh, life plans. Um, wow, no idea. But then she says that when she left school, when Joyce was sick, she always thought she would re-enroll. She has missed the deadline, quote, busy being dead and all, end quote. But she would have liked to do that. And Willow and Tara suggest she could audit classes until she can register for next semester. Buffy thinks that sounds good and then asks Giles what he thinks. And this is the first time he looks a bit troubled. At 2 minutes 31 seconds into the episode, Jonathan tells the other two in the trio that the Slayer always knows what she's doing. She's decisive. She always has a plan. And they can't be crime lords of Sunnydale as long as she's against them. And Warren responds that that's why they're going to run these tests to see if they can find her weaknesses. Warren has outfitted a big black panel van with lots of tech and he's sure they can watch Buffy from it without her noticing. But his certainty is undercut when they walk around the van and Andrew is spray painting a really good depiction of the Death Star on the side. 
Andrew and Jonathan argue about whether it's accurate and what Star Wars Death Star plans it's based on. Warren cuts them off to yell at Andrew about drawing attention to them, and Andrew says he'll paint over it. At 3 minutes 51 seconds, Warren says the games begin tomorrow and that the Slayer won't know what hit her, and we go to credits. This was the story spark or inciting incident of the episode. And usually in any story that happens around 10% through, though it can be much earlier in some mysteries, for instance, it happens on page one if someone stumbles over a body on page one and they have to solve the murder. Here it is right about 10% when we get back from the credits at 4 minutes 43 seconds. Buffy is at Sunnydale University campus. She's excited to go with Willow and Tara to class and observe or audit the classes. She's with Willow in a sociology class and is surprised that the students call the teacher Mike and Buffy jokes, boy, school sure has changed since my day. Mike starts asking questions about the social construction of reality. He asks and they answer rapid fire. They're volunteering all over the place. They're well prepared. Um, I really want this class of students. I would love to have students this engaged in my law school legal writing class. And I've got to tell you, it almost never happens. Buffy's face, though, shows how lost she is. Understandably, every student seems to be a superstar in this class. One of them says that each person participates in the construction of their own life. I do find it fun that on rewatch, you realize that this topic for sociology fits very well the premise of the episodes, the social construction of reality, something that you can't know the first time through. Buffy's intimidated by all the big brains and whispers about that to Willow, who assures her that the others are no smarter than Willow or Buffy. But then without skipping a beat, Willow answers a question that it hardly seems she could have heard Mike, the teacher, asking while she was talking to Buffy. After a commercial, Willow and Buffy walk in the hall and Willow tells Buffy she's not dumb, just rusty. But Buffy thinks she might need to ease in with something less taxing like advanced walking. Right then, someone bumps into Buffy. She drops her purse. Willow yells after the guy that he could at least say sorry, and she calls him Rudo. The guy rounds the corner, and we see it's Warren. He glances at an overhead camera and tells the other two who are watching on a monitor in the van that, quote, Renner is tagged, end quote, and it's time to initiate the pulse sequence. A satellite dish sort of piece of tech emerges from the top of the van outside. This is a bit early in the episode, but we could see it as the first major plot turn. I think of it as the one quarter turn because typically that's where it shows up in any story. And sometimes in TV, it comes later than that, more like a third. It is some sort of event or force from outside the protagonist that spins the story in a new direction and raises the stakes. And as we'll see, that is what happened here. Tara gives Buffy an art book to look at during the break between classes. Buffy looks at it and then hears this swooshing sound. And suddenly, Tara is sitting on a bench rather than standing next to Buffy in mid-sentence about cooking. Buffy thinks she spaced out, and Tara does too, thinking Buffy got absorbed in the book. Then Buffy gets a drink at a drinking fountain, and suddenly Tara's at the other end of the hall, calling out that they'll be late for class, and Buffy knows that something is wrong. At 7 minutes 42 seconds, the three guys in the van are so excited that their device is working. Inside the school, Buffy runs after Tara, but a second later, Tara and the other students emerge from the class and Tara asks Buffy why she missed the session. Buffy tries to explain, pointing to a clock face where the hand now speeds forward, but now all the students are gone, the halls are empty. And Buffy runs outside calling for Tara. All the students in that outdoor area speed up so they become blurred. Buffy gets knocked to the ground and stepped on and she finally crawls under a table. Here is the first thing that makes me stumble and step out of the story. 
to think about this spell because all these students are going so fast they become blurs. What do they see in terms of Buffy? It doesn't make sense that if they're moving faster than Buffy, which they must be because she is coming in and out of a timeline in a way, she stops seeing them. What do they see? Wouldn't Buffy, in their perception, be moving so slowly that she is standing there like a statue? Yet it seems like these students don't see her at all because they knock into her and step on her. Also, going back to Tara and Buffy, it makes sense that in those quick blips that Buffy misses that Tara thinks, oh, Buffy's absorbed in the book. Buffy's taking a really long time at the drinking fountain. But when Tara leaves class and moves on, how can she not realize at least that Buffy's not with her? Let's say Buffy doesn't become a statue. We don't know that Buffy just blinks out of existence and then blinks back in later. Why does Tara not raise an alarm? Buffy disappeared. Maybe she thinks Buffy just wandered off, but later on, there'll be a suggestion that Giles thinks it's all just stress on Buffy's part. Why wouldn't Buffy say, hey, talk to Tara, I just disappeared? Even if Tara didn't literally see her disappear, Tara would be able to say, yeah, I, I kept calling to Buffy and, and she never showed up and I, I left the classroom and I turned around and she was just gone. That would help support Buffy's point. This goes to not just that magic needs to have consistent rules. That is one thing, as we saw with that demon in Afterlife, where it seemed to play by different rules at different times. Here, we don't know if it's consistent or not because the rules are never clear. But that goes to the second problem. A story needs to follow its own internal logic, whether it's magic or not magic. And here that doesn't happen because it's it's never explained what the logic is of this spell, but also Tara's part is never explained. Under the table, Buffy now says aloud to herself, that noise, there's something on me. And she takes off her sweater. This is a little bit of breaking the world of Buffy the series and of Buffy the character because while Buffy does sometimes mutter to herself, it's typically some sort of uh, frustration or self-deprecating thing or wry joke. We don't usually see Buffy just explaining what she's doing to nobody, which is what she does here. If she didn't, we wouldn't get why she's taking off her sweater. I still am a little confused about that. What makes her think that something's on me means it's on her sweater and that just happens to lead her to finding this little tiny device. Maybe she remembers that guy that ran into her. And this is one of those rare times that maybe seeing a quick flash of Buffy's recollection might help. Instead of her saying that, if we just saw her flashing back to being bumped into, then she takes off her sweater and looks through it. Given that she dropped the purse, though, it seems more like she might look in her purse. So again, that internal logic question. And, and the reason that's an issue is it makes me do what I'm doing, which is stop and try to sort out what's happening instead of being immersed in the story. So Buffy finds this tiny dot-sized device and stares in it. And we know as the audience, it includes a camera because the geeks see her staring at them through a monitor and they hit self-destruct. The dot implodes and Buffy's day goes back to normal. At 9 minutes 28 seconds, Jonathan and Andrew confer and give Warren points for his test of Buffy. Warren says, beat that. And Andrew says, oh, I will, I will. We're about 10 minutes through, so closer to that one quarter point in the episode. And while we already had that one turn that took the story in a new direction, we now get another because Buffy will go on to this second 
test. This is a great example of if you are writing a story with a somewhat different structure, here we have it structured by four different tests that the trio does, you can still make use of these plot turns by increasing the tension right around those one quarter marks in the story. We don't have the tests fit the one quarter marks entirely because there is some additional movement that we want in the season long arc and some character points. So we don't wanna use, or the writers didn't wanna use up the entire episode with these tests but they do right around a quarter shift to the next test, which keeps the forward momentum of the story and gives it a good pace. Buffy and Xander wearing hard hats talk about how Xander called in a few favors to get her this job. She really appreciates it. He saved her from accepting Giles's offer to work at the magic box. And Buffy says, retail, ew, I'd rather be dead again. Xander asks if Giles had any theories about, quote, your little fast forward freak out at school, end quote. And Buffy says Giles implied it could be stress related. For me, this is another character break or two character breaks because I don't buy that Giles or Buffy thinks that she imagined it, mainly because that's never happened. Buffy has always been right when she has sensed something off. And even after coming back from the dead, she saw those photos turning into skulls, she thought she might be going crazy, and it turned out to be the demon. So it, it doesn't make sense to me that they both think that this could be stress and Buffy was just spacing out. That is a character issue, an internal logic issue. And then there's another one in that now the focus seems to be on Buffy having a job and earning money. Well, school didn't answer that. So it's not clear why the school spell putting her off of auditing classes means that she right away needs a job. Also, it's not clear why Buffy doesn't try again with school, knowing a spell messed with her. Although I find that more consistent with her character this season because she's struggling, she is somewhat depressed, and that makes it a lot harder to keep trying at something when you've had a setback, even if that wasn't your fault. And here she's apparently not sure if it was her fault or not, because now she says that maybe she was blacking out, but there was this thing on her sweater that went poof. And she says, maybe it was lint. Maybe it was evil lint. Xander tells her when she meets Tony the foreman, she might want to leave out things about evil lint or blacking out. When Xander introduces Buffy, Tony ignores Buffy's outstretched hand when she says nice to meet him and calls her Gidget. Xander tells Buffy, don't mind Tony. He may seem pig ignorant, rude, and a little hostile, but see you later, and he leaves. One of the other guys jokingly tells Tony to let little Brittany help when Tony tries to leave her out of the assignments so that they don't get in trouble with the affirmative action lawyers. Tony tells Buffy not to break a nail. Another guy who's pretty nice tells her not to let Tony get to her or talk her into hurting herself. These beams weigh a few hundred pounds, but Buffy picks one up with minimal effort and asks which way. She carries the beam into the wood framing of the building and tells another construction guy how happy she is to be doing this. It makes sense for her, and she helps him with another beam, but rather than appreciating it, he tells her slow down. They get paid by the hour. Don't ruin it for the rest of them. The trio huddles together and looks at the site through binoculars. Jonathan and Warren argue about what is four o'clock when one of them tries to point something out. Andrew plays on his pipes and inside Buffy hears the haunting flute music and looks around, but she doesn't see anything unusual. Tony holding a wrench comes up behind her, startles her, and then asks if he scared her. She shoves him. There's a demon behind him. He doesn't see that attacks. He flies off to the side. Uh, Tony, that is not the demon, and is knocked out. 
more demons join the first one. Buffy fights all of them doing a great job, but a lot of the construction wood framing and metal braces get destroyed in the process. When she kills each demon, it melts into a pool of green goo and disappeared. She's down to two, and two construction guys yell for help as the demons attack them. Buffy fights off and kills those demons as well. At 16 minutes, 24 seconds, in the van, Andrew whines about Buffy taking them out so quickly. He and Warren keep fighting over the binoculars, and one of them falls on the horn, and the Star Wars theme blares out. Buffy looks and sees a black panel van. Inside, Andrew says defensively to Warren, hey, all you said was lose the mural, which is a funny line that really fits the characters. And most of Andrew's lines in these episodes, I find the funniest because they grow out of his character. And he seems a little bit less generic than the other two. Xander sees the chaos and says to Buffy that he knows those guys were jerks, but did Buffy have to do all of this? Buffy protests she didn't do it. This is the first character break for Xander because while I buy that he's upset, this is going to be really hard to explain. I don't buy that he thinks Buffy just went berserk because these guys were jerks. So that's an example of humor that doesn't work for me because it doesn't feel authentic to Xander's character. Tony, his head all scraped up, says Buffy suddenly went berserk and attacked. And Buffy, indignant, says, I saved you from the... And then she has to pull Xander aside to tell him it was demons. Now Xander continues being a jerk and says, no, not here, not at my job. That's your job. And that also feels off to me. Of course, he'd be upset about this, but I can't see him blaming Buffy. It's like Xander momentarily forgot what being the Slayer is. Quick personal update, which is more in the nature of an apology. In the last episode, I said my latest QC Davis mystery ebook edition was free the hidden man on the day of the podcast and for two days after but the free days didn't start until the day after the podcast episode aired so i am sorry if anybody clicked on it and discovered it was regular price there is a comment on the episode Afterlife from a Buffy and the Art of Story patron, Steve. This was in relation to me saying that I thought Buffy would tell Giles that she wasn't in a hell dimension while she was dead. I didn't buy that she would hold that back, but Steve disagreed and said Buffy wouldn't tell Giles she was in heaven because he might then tell Willow using it as a another reason that Willow was reckless doing the spell, but I don't buy that Giles isn't happy Willow did the spell and that Buffy's back. That is a good point. My only counterpoint to it is when Buffy and Giles first talk about her being back, Buffy doesn't know yet how angry Giles is at Willow. So I'm not sure that that is a reason she wouldn't trust him to keep the secret from Willow and the others if she told him. In other news, I was just a guest on the podcast, The Right Approach, that's W-R-I-T-E, and talked a bit about this podcast. I don't know when that episode will air. We, we just recorded it, but I was a little surprised by my own answer to one of the host's questions, which was, how had doing the Buffy podcast helped me learn more about writing? I learned a lot about plot as I watched and rewatched the series, but what I've learned the most about by doing the podcast is characters, because almost always when an episode doesn't quite work for me, it's about the characters as I'm talking about today. And sometimes when the plot's not working, it's 
also about the character issues. So I was a bit surprised to realize that I personally am probably getting more out of doing this from a character perspective. For that reason, I decided that I would do a free day on my writing as a second career book, Creating Compelling Characters from the Inside Out, on Monday, March 13th the day that this podcast episode airs. So you can get Creating Compelling Characters from the Inside Out free for your Kindle. You can find that on Amazon by searching for the name. You can look at lisalily.com under the nonfiction menu to find it. And if you are interested in reading that book on characterization or in any of the writing as a second career books. This month, March and early April are the best time to do that if you read on Kindle because they are available in Kindle Unlimited, which means you can borrow them anytime for free. Following that, the books will not be in Kindle Unlimited anymore, at least not the main three books, Super Simple Story Structure, The One-Year Novelist, and Creating Compelling Characters from the Inside Out will not be in Kindle Unlimited anymore. You'll still be able to buy them for Kindle and other ebook platforms and in workbook, hardback, softcover formats, but there won't be uh, the free days for them. So great time to check out Creating Compelling Characters from the Inside Out. Buffy reasonably points out that she can't help where the forces of darkness attack. Nonetheless, Xander has zero sympathy. This is going to cost a lot. And what's he supposed to do? Show the demon bodies and say it's the demon's fault? And Buffy sheepishly says he can't even do that because they melted. This humor, too, doesn't land for me because... Even if the demon bodies were there in the world of Buffy, the the other people in the town block out the idea of demons. Even if they see something, a demon, a vampire, it goes out of their heads. So showing the demon bodies wouldn't help Xander and it wouldn't help pay for it. Presumably the demons don't have insurance for when they cause damage. Buffy though argues there were witnesses and tells Vince to tell Xander how she jumped in and protected him from those things. Vince denies it. He's the one who was sort of nice earlier. All he knows is Buffy was losing it. Maybe it's that time of the month. And Buffy says, what? You were huddled in a corner crying like a baby. This too doesn't quite land for me because again, who is Buffy trying to prove this to? Xander? He ought to believe her. There's no reason that Xander wouldn't believe her. And then these, these guys, these construction guys are such caricatures that they aren't as fun as Buffy jerks usually are. We certainly get characters with these attitudes and it fits in Buffy that that they would see her this way, but the dialogue is usually more subtle, leaves more to inference and is not so on the nose as, oh, maybe it's her time of the month. Buffy stalks out. Xander follows. She insists she didn't imagine this. Xander claims he believes her. He thinks someone's messing with her. And she needs to go see Giles right away to start checking this out. And Buffy says, you're firing me, aren't you? And Xander says, big time. That whole melty thing ought to help narrow it down. So it seems he does believe her because he makes that comment. And he says he'll help her go through demon mugshots after work. And that is another example of the internal logic of the story not quite holding together. Because if Xander does believe her, why doesn't he just say that earlier? We don't need that whole thing of Buffy insisting that it all happened and appealing to the construction guys. And I know we're supposed to find the crying like a baby and those guys' comments sort of funny slash something that makes us empathize more with Buffy, but it it feels like filler to me. At 17 minutes, 41 seconds, Anya walks Buffy through the magic box. Buffy tries to be enthusiastic, claiming she's always been interested in retail, Giles brings out a load of books. The time anomaly and the demons might be unrelated, but if not, she may be in some danger. So apparently he finally believes her. 
And Buffy says, so, situation normal then. Anya explains how to do returns, special orders, hold slips, and other procedures, which she offers to illustrate, quote, with an amusing story about a crystal, end quote. Inside the van, the trio watches through a camera that is in the eye of a skull in the magic box, and Warren says it's so dull he might have fallen asleep and be dreaming. Andrew wonders why the Slayer is there. First she's a student, then she's a construction worker, now she's, quote, some kind of selling stuff person, end quote. Another funny line from Andrew that fits with how he looks at the world. Jonathan interrupts their thoughts which have moved on to checking for free cable porn to say he's ready to do a spell. The three giggle about holding hands for the spell and about Jonathan's magic bone. The spell causes flames and smoke fills the van and escapes from it, but no one in the shop notices. At 20 minutes, 13 seconds, a woman customer enters the store. Giles advises Buffy to think of the store more like a library. Concentrate on service, not on making the sale and she'll be more likely to have a satisfied customer. Buffy says she guesses she'll have to find her own style and Giles walks away saying quite quite and cleaning his glasses. Anya points to the woman and tells Buffy to go sell her something. So until I broke down the episode, I didn't realize that this is the beginning of this test because Giles and Anya together are telling Buffy what she has to do. As Buffy approaches the woman, a male customer stops her by the candles to ask which creates a more romantic atmosphere. Buffy smells two candles, lemon seduction and essence of slug, and hands him the lemon seduction. A nice side comment on some aspects of retail. The woman customer needs a monkey's hand for a prosperity spell. Buffy makes a joke about it being downstairs and kind of hairy, so maybe it's a daddy hand and the woman doesn't laugh. We are at the midpoint of the episode in just a moment, and that is where I look for the protagonist to suffer a major reversal or make a major commitment to the quest or both. Here Buffy suffers a major reversal which will be quickly followed by another one. In the basement she finds the monkey hand but when she tries to pick it up it leaps up, grabs her by the throat, and chokes her. She throws it down and stabs it with a large knife. So that is around 21 minutes 50 seconds through so almost exactly halfway through. She has failed at her task, but upstairs she'll discover why that matters so much. She tells the customer that she can have the monkey hand and get the dagger of Lex for free. Look at the mother of pearl under the oozing goo. At 22 minutes, 13 seconds, the customer refuses to pay. It has no power once it is dead. So the joke about getting the dagger free feels very Buffy-like to me. The next joke doesn't. Buffy says, it's just playing dead, quote, little scamp, end quote, and smacks it. Kind of fun, a bit of a Monty Python skit reference where there was a dead bird, but it feels a little too obvious. Buffy's humor is usually more witty and also usually more grounded in truth, where here uh, it's, it's obviously a reference to another show, which is more typical for other characters to make in Buffy. At 22 minutes, 16 seconds, the bell over the entryway door rings again, and the same customer enters. Giles stops to give Buffy the same advice and he ignores it when Buffy says, huh? What? And we did this just now. Something is happening. So this probably is the real major reversal because now Buffy sees that she is in this loop. Whichever one you see is the midpoint reversal, this shows a great escalation of the conflict and escalation of the obstacles Buffy must face. This is the point when I did the first outline of my episode, it hit me that Giles and 
Anya were part of the loop. I had not quite realized before. I knew they appeared in every iteration, but didn't realize that the spell was directly affecting them because Giles doesn't register what Buffy says at any point, and that will be doubled down on. The three geeks in the van talk about how Buffy is looping, and Jonathan made it so Buffy has to solve a task that resists solving. He then reflects that maybe he should have made it harder. He could have made her kind of itchy, too. Anya inside thinks Buffy looks nervous and advises her to do what Anya does, quote, picture yourself naked, end quote. This is funny, and it is an example of what I think of as the best Buffy humor and dialogue where we subvert an expectation. We think she's going to say, picture the audience naked, or that would be the conventional advice, but I love that Anya pictures herself naked. The male customer starts to ask Buffy again about the candle, and she just hands him the lemon candle. The woman says she's looking for something really specific and Buffy right away says the mummy hand which surprises the woman. When Buffy says she can't get her the hand, the woman insists she called and was told she could buy it and quote, I'm not leaving until I get a mummy hand end quote. And Buffy says okay and she guesses she'll have to get it. She has figured out the task and Andrew and Warren in the van exclaim over that and then talk about similar X-Files and Star Trek Next Generation episodes where there are loops. I do enjoy that this challenge shows Buffy using her brain, which has always been part of her strength as the Slayer, not only her physical power. And it shows that perhaps the trio recognizes that they are testing Buffy's brain as well as her strength. In the basement, though, the mummy hand dances around as Buffy tries to get it with the tongs. It ends up in a bag. We find out its fingers are chopped off when Buffy makes a joke about that, trying to hand the bag to the customer, and the loop starts over at 23 minutes, 34 seconds. A few things are different. Anya worries about Buffy when Buffy's comments make no sense to her. Giles approaches to give advice. And when he's done, Buffy says, and then I'm going to marry Bob Dole and raise penguins in Guam, end quote. And Giles just says, quite right. This time, the monkey hand almost chokes the woman and the loop begins again. And we get in quick succession Buffy's attempts. She tries to walk out of the store but ends up inside again. She stares sad and defeated at the hand dancing around now holding the tongs in the basement. She tries disabling the bell. She throws the slug candle at the guy and tells him to go with slug. The woman's not going to sleep with him anyway. And she stomps on Giles' glasses. She tries throwing the woman out. There's one where she just stands there crying. I did enjoy this. It's very much like a first day in retail. I remember my first day as a cashier at the discount store Venture. It felt endless, and I'm pretty sure my shift was only four hours, and there are definitely times I felt like just standing there and crying. Finally, Buffy says clearly feeling defeated that she knows they promised the woman a monkey hand but she can't get it for her it's defective and the woman says there must be something you can do and Buffy starts to say there's no way to fix it but then suddenly looks a little happier and says no way to get the customer that monkey hand but she can special order one and deliver it anywhere the woman now is happy Buffy hands over a receipt and in the van, Andrew and Jonathan argue about whose test did the most to plague Buffy. Jonathan says his took the longest, but Andrew says only from Buffy's perspective, from Giles' point of view, it was the shortest of all. They argue over what to do, and Warren cuts in and says, it's not over. I struggle with that because I don't think this pays off. This suggests there is another test, and yet the fourth test does not feel like a real test at all, which is part of what falls flat for me, part of what doesn't work for the internal logic of the episode, but I'll get to that. Inside the store, Giles congratulates Buffy on her first sale, but then Anya notices Buffy didn't charge for delivery. Surely Buffy will understand that 
that it has to come out of her pay. Buffy looks defeated again. She says she understands, but she leaves her name tag on the counter and walks out, and the bell rings to end the scene, and we cut to commercial. So it seems that Buffy did not tell Anya and Giles about the spell or the loop, even though Giles is researching to try to sort all this out. On return from commercial at 28 minutes, 17 seconds, Buffy says, this is going to be great. She's sitting in Spike's crypt with him. They have whiskey and shot glasses. She downs a shot and makes this goofy noise like, and sticks out her tongue. And she's going to continue to do that every time she takes a drink in the episode. I know this is supposed to be funny. I would love to hear if any of you found this funny or endearing. It just annoyed me. I partly didn't find it funny because it doesn't fit Buffy's character. It's a lot like in Triangle, the troll episode, where Buffy was doing this exaggerated boo-hooing all over the place. And here she's going to do this exaggerated sound. Very, very, very cartoony. Buffy says life is stupid. And Spike says, I have a dim memory of that. Yeah. This is very Spike-like. She starts to tell Spike about what happened and says Giles is working on it. So this is a little bit of a, a question here. Did she then go back and tell Giles about the loop? I guess she did because she says he's working on it. Spike mocks Giles' research and says he could do better. Hit the demon world, throw some punches, find things out, and it's fun. Buffy claims it's not her kind of fun, but Spike says it so is. And I love this because there were times Buffy had fun slaying, and Spike is trying to remind her of that. Buffy already showing the effects of her drinking, which which I do buy because she's clearly been drinking a lot of shots, says Spike has had too much. She's cutting him off. Of course, it's had no effect on Spike. We've seen that he can drink quite a lot before it hits him being a vampire. Spike, unlike me, finds her goofy blah ha sound and sticking out her tongue amusing. He tells her she's not a schoolgirl or a shop girl, quote, you're a creature of the darkness like me, end quote, and he suggests she try on his world, and she asks if there are drinks there. Of course there are. At 30 minutes, 5 seconds, they enter a demon bar. This isn't Willie's demon bar. There's louder music, much more going on, much more of a feel of um, aliveness, despite it being a demon bar and excitement. Buffy takes a whole bottle of whiskey rather than a glass and goes into the back room with Spike, where the real action is. Demons are playing poker. Spike says these are low lowlifes that know everything that happens, Buffy a little too loudly talks about lowlifes. One of the demons doesn't want to let Spike play because Spike kills their kind. Spike just throws the demon out. But rather than asking questions like Buffy wants him to, he sits down to play. She protests and he tells the others, quote, I need a moment with my lady, end quote. Buffy wants to start killing demons, and he tells her once they're dead, they won't have much to say, and also that the demons will talk while they play. That's the whole point. So Buffy reluctantly sits off to the side. A demon who has lots of loose folds of skin tells them all to ante up. I'm going to call him Clem. Minor spoiler, we'll find out his name later in the season. Buffy is shocked to find out that they are playing for kittens. Spike needs an advance of a tiny tabby and he needs someone to stake him Buffy says she'll do it which I do enjoy I completely buy that Buffy would say this and the playing for kittens is some fun humor we're now about three quarters through the episode and usually here in any story we'll see the last major plot turn that takes the story in yet another new direction but it's different from that first major turn because instead of coming completely from outside of Buffy, it should grow from the midpoint reversal or commitment. It sort of does that here in the sense that Buffy had a major reversal with the previous test the trio threw at her, and now they're going to at least talk about another test. I'm 
not sure that entirely spins the story and that's one of my issues with this episode in the van at 32 minutes six seconds the three talk about being supervillains and they're heading for the final jeopardy round where buffy's the one in jeopardy nonetheless they don't seem to start another test here instead they make a bunch of pop culture references and get into an argument over which james bond actor was the best Inside, Spike has a straight flush and he wins the hand. Clem accuses him of cheating. Spike's indignant. What about the others? One of them has x-ray vision. That demon claims he's not using it, though. And when Clem again complains about Spike cheating, everyone sees he has an ace in the folds of his arms. The, the Clem does, not Spike. Clem is defensive. He didn't even know it was there. Maybe it was there from last week. He also has no patience for Spike and his human and goes on her skin so tight I don't even know how you can look at her all the demons tell Spike to leave but they want to keep the kittens he wants his winnings and says they can't fight him he's got the slayer with him but Buffy is clear she'll beat the demons up for information but not to defend Spike's right to gamble for kittens quote which by the way is a stupid currency end quote If you're enjoying the podcast and you want more of it, you can get access to lots of bonus content by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Lisa M. Lily, that's L-I-S-A, M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. I just recorded this month's bonus episode, Life Candy, Comparing World-Altering Spells in Band Candy and Life Cereal. Other bonus episodes include one where I compared Band Candy and Triangle, looking at the differences in the humor grounded in real life, the changes or exaggerations of characters, and the universal themes that both of those episodes covered. You'll also get to hear one of my favorite bonus episodes, Gothic Horror and Buffy versus Dracula, where I look at the season five pilot, which was an atypical Buffy episode and how it relies on and sometimes subverts gothic tropes, including the damsel in distress. In addition to getting access to bonus episodes as a patron, you can listen to every regular podcast episode two or three days early, which means if you'd rather listen to it on the weekend before it releases, you can do that. Plus, you'll be helping support Buffy and the Art of Story and ensuring it continues through the end of season seven and beyond. So you can join at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. If you don't want to add another recurring charge to your monthly uh, credit card, but you would still like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash Lisa M. Lily. You don't get all the bonus episodes there, but there are some that you can listen to as well as a thank you. Speaking of that, thank you to everyone who is a patron or a donor. And of course, thank you to all listeners who tune in every week. I appreciate that you are giving me your time and that you are enjoying the show. Clem informs Buffy that kittens are delicious and everyone's mad when she dumps out the basket to free all the little cats. She storms off, Spike follows and asks her what's wrong. Now Buffy rants that he was going to throw punches and help her and he didn't and her life sucks and she says, quote, stupid Buffy, too dumb for college and freak Buffy, too strong for construction, end quote. And she says that in the magic box, she was bored to tears. Here, the internal logic breaks just a tiny bit with the freak Buffy too strong for construction because the issue was not that she was too strong. It was that her demon, uh, that demons attacked. It was the fact that she's a slayer and that gets in the way of having any sort of normal 
job. Something that I mentioned last episode in Flooded, Giles ignores, and here it's ignored again. Buffy goes on, the only person she can stand to be around is a, quote, neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker, end quote, and also she thinks Spike is drunk. At 34 minutes, 41 seconds, she leaves the bar. The trio is still arguing about who is the best James Bond. Warren says, end of discussion, but it starts all over again. Spike follows Buffy out. She's staring at the van, and she tells him that van was at the construction site. Inside, the three are still arguing and don't notice as Buffy heads straight for their van. Finally, the trio see Buffy, and Warren says, Jonathan, grab your magic bone, and all of them giggle over that again. Now we're at the climax where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. At 36 minutes, 11 seconds, a large red demon with gauzy wings leaps out from behind the van and gets between Buffy and the vehicle. The van pulls away while the demon tells Buffy it's been testing her and knows her weaknesses, so she needs to be careful of it. Buffy slugs the demon, but she also falls down because she is drunk. She clearly hurt the demon, and it calls on a misty portal sounding like it's in pain and throws a smoke bomb down and runs off. Buffy and Spike don't seem to see it doing that part. They just see the smoke, and Buffy says, he blew up. Did you see that? But she can't really appreciate her sort of victory because she feels kind of sick. This is an internal logic question I have as well. Was there another test that the trio was going to do with Buffy because earlier they alluded to Final Jeopardy where Buffy's the one in Jeopardy but as we'll see in a moment this demon wasn't posing any Jeopardy to Buffy. This feels like an anti-climax. Now we're in the falling action where the writers tie up loose ends, resolve subplots, and continue the arc of the series. At 37 minutes, 15 seconds, the demon runs back to the van. The spell ends and it turns into Jonathan. So we see that he made himself into a sort of demon, but he's quite sore and he explains that as a demon he still had only his own proportional strength. So that's why I say there was no real danger to Buffy. Now perhaps there was going to be another test and the three got distracted by their arguing and the grab your magic bone thing was just a uh, makeshift way to distract Buffy but but we never really find that out, which undercuts the power of the episode and the threat these three pose. Andrew's impressed that the Slayer touched Jonathan, but Jonathan says something like, oh, real sexy. He is pretty beat up from that one punch. Warren, though, feels this is all a victory. They got a lot of data about the Slayer. They faced her and survived. They did really good. And Warren says the trio versus the Slayer. It's not over. And this raises a question of, okay, why exactly is it over even for now? For instance, that loop spell was pretty strong. Could Jonathan have kept Buffy in a loop forever? And if he could, why not do that? Because we don't see that doing these spells has had any effect on the trio. This goes to something I talked about in earlier episodes this season, why magic has to have a cost. We see when Willow tries to bring or does bring Buffy back that it exhausts her and that doesn't happen here and that creates a logic flaw because if Jonathan could create that kind of loop, why don't they just keep creating loops for Buffy and keep her busy while they go off and do whatever they want to do? do because it seems that they are outside of the loop. While Buffy was in that loop, um, they could have 
just gone off and done whatever. They were not affected by it the way that Giles and Anya were. For Giles and Anya, being in the loop with Buffy, in a way, um, for them, they don't perceive the loop happening at all. So the time goes by in a flash. But Jonathan, Andrew, and Warren watch the whole thing. So time for them apparently continues. Presumably they could do a lot of stuff while Buffy's stuck. So that is not answered. And it's not that you have to answer every single thing, but when you create a spell, that alters the world or that does certain things. There needs to be logical consistency or anything in a story needs to have consistency within the world of the story. And here, there are lots of inconsistencies. How the spell affects Anya and Giles versus how it affects the trio, how time moves for everyone, what the effects are for Buffy of that speeding up time for everyone else and slowing it down for her in the first spell, all these things are not answered. The guys then talk about, yay, they also discovered free cable porn and they drive away. Now we're going to wind up the plot or subplot about Buffy figuring out what to do with her life. At 38 minutes, 40 seconds, she exits the bathroom, says she feels completely inside out. Giles hands her a glass of what looks like Alka-Seltzer and apologizes for not finding the demon that's doing this. Buffy sits on the floor by the bed, her hand on her forehead, and says she's really screwing up. Giles reassures her, says she was was tested by some unknown demon, but she's unhappy she let the demon set the rules. Giles says she's pushing herself too hard, and Buffy responds, the nice people at the phone company seem to think it's not hard enough. So this goes to that question I had, if that is Buffy's motive in this episode, how is auditing classes going to help that? That would not help her pay the phone bill. It also goes to my other question about whether any... uh, Willow and Tara are chipping in for anything. Giles now hands Buffy a check. She sees the amount, her eyes widen, and at first she says she can't accept it, but when he pretends that he's willing to take it back and tear it up, uh, she says she was just being polite. She tells him it's more than great. She doesn't know how to say this, but, quote, it's a little like having mom back. They joke about whether Giles would rather be her shiftless absentee father. And Buffy thanks Giles again, very heartfelt, And he helps her to her feet, symbolic. And Buffy says, I'm going to show this to Dawn. She loves it when things get easy. Before she leaves the room, she turns back and tells him it makes her feel safe, quote, knowing you're always going to be there, end quote. She leaves the room and Giles half sighs, looking troubled. I won't beat a dead demon again and talk about how it's never discussed that watchers get paid and slayers don't. So we'll just say that is just part of the world of the show and maybe the writer's making a comment or not. But what seems out of character for me is there's no recognition by Giles or Buffy that Buffy in Checkpoint, that season five episode where the Watchers Council came and tested Buffy and Giles, that Buffy got Giles nearly two years of back pay. She got him reinstated as her watcher and insisted on the back pay. If nothing else, Giles kind of owes Buffy. And rather than leaving her feel like he's doing her a favor, uh, is rescuing her when she should be able to do this by herself, he could have said, all I'm doing is sharing with you some of what you got for me or returning to you some of that back pay you got for me. He was fired by the council through no fault of Buffy's. No fault of his either. It was because of the council. But Buffy got him his job back And that would have probably made Buffy feel a lot better. I have to amend that a little. I don't think Giles was saying she ought to be doing all this herself. In fact, he's saying you're being too hard on yourself. Yet his worried look about Buffy relying on him suggests that he doesn't want her to keep doing that. And okay, he wants her 
to be able to take care of herself. But it would be nice to have some acknowledgement there. And I believe the real Giles would think of that, would be sensitive to that, and would have a lot of gratitude toward Buffy for having gotten him his official job back. Presumably he's still being paid. I don't think the council ever knew that Buffy was dead. So he kept getting paid as a watcher. So why shouldn't he now help Buffy? That is it for this episode, other than foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. If you find the way I talk about plot structure helpful and want to apply it directly to your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not staying for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for All the Way, Season 6, Episode 6, where Anya and Xander have an engagement party and Dawn sneaks away and goes parking with a vampire. Lots of foreshadowing here. A fun one, the demon Clem with all the folds of skin. I found it so interesting to see him here because later in the season, he will be a pretty nice demon, a good friend to Spike, kind of a good friend to Buffy and very nice to her. So very different than Clem in this episode, what little we see of him. So I'm thinking probably everyone really liked working with this actor and perhaps were intrigued by this type of demon and decided to use Clem in that role. Maybe it was some other demon when they laid out the series or maybe there wasn't even going to be this friend of Spike's. I had never noticed that Willow and Warren have their first encounter in this episode and that Warren bumps into Buffy and that Willow yells at him and calls him Rudo. Ironic given that Warren is going to cause Willow so much pain to kill Tara, to injure Buffy fatally if it's not for Willow's intervention and set her on the path. Well, she's already on the path to being Dark Willow, but ensure that she goes all the way down that path and that she will kill him. So first encounter, foreshadowing a lot there of the Willow-Warren dynamic. So much here foreshadowing Buffy and Spike's relationship. This further develops their friendship. Spike is the one she goes to, the one she really talks to about how she's feeling. And he tries to help. He tries to remind her that, hey, being the Slayer can be fun, that there's a time when she enjoyed throwing punches and getting information from demons. Remember back when she said it was kind of like comfort food for a slayer. Spike wasn't there for that, but he is echoing that feeling. There is also foreshadowing of them becoming a couple because this outing to the demon bar is a lot like a date, even more like a date than Spike taking Buffy on the fake stakeout because Buffy agrees to go with to check out his world. Now, it's still supposedly to try, well, it is to try to find out information, but certainly that is how she and Angel and she and Riley developed their relationships. Also, Spike acts like it's a date and so does everyone else he says to the other demons i need a moment with my lady now there's some play acting there he doesn't i don't think want them to know buffy's the slayer he wants them to think she just came along with him for fun but it foreshadows that they will become a couple this moment when Spike tells her she's not a schoolgirl or a shop girl, quote, you're a creature of the darkness like me, starts this arc where Spike begins not just being Buffy's friend and confidant, which he had started doing in season five, now it starts to shift where he isn't just trying to be Buffy's friend or being supportive or even hoping they will develop a relationship, but he's trying to pull her away from her world to convince her that she should be like him, that she belongs in the darkness with him. And we will see that growing throughout season six. 
I love that. We see that the trio has a camera in the skull in the magic box. I completely forgot that that's how they watch Buffy's loop. And that is how in the future they will see Spike and Anya having sex in the magic box. Not only will they see it when Willow taps into the feed, Buffy and her friends will see it too. So I had completely forgotten that this skull camera was foreshadowed so early. Um, we'll also see it in the Blinvisible episode when, when Buffy turns invisible. I'm pretty sure they are watching through that skull camera. Giles and Buffy joking about whether he'd rather be her shiftless absentee father. Buffy saying the check makes her feel safe knowing Giles is always going to be there. Giles looking uncomfortable about Buffy asking his opinion on auditing classes. All of this foreshadows Giles deciding that Buffy is relying on him too much and leaving. I have so many issues with Giles leaving as, as a way to deal with that, but it is foreshadowed here that Giles is worried about this. And I suppose I can see a little bit of it because Buffy, though she does rely on him as a mentor throughout the series, until now has been growing toward independence from him, and she always went her own way when she disagreed with Giles, and now she's uncertain. She's asking his advice on life things in a way that she never did before. There's Buffy and Dawn foreshadowing here too. When Buffy doesn't want to talk about Angel, Dawn kind of petulant says, sure, whatever. This foreshadows angsty adolescent Dawn who is going to take everything that Buffy goes through personally. Here, I like that it is pretty understated. So despite that I didn't love life serial and I think it could be lifted out of the season without doing any real damage, it does signal a lot about what is to come. That is it for foreshadowing and the episode. Thank you to all of you for listening and a special thank you to those patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for a breakdown of All the Way, Season 6, Episode 6, another Buffy Halloween episode. And in this one, Dawn is the one who sneaks out for Halloween hijinks and puts herself in peril. If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved. <laughs>